an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell and this is episode 76. I am so excited to share this conversation with you today. I spoke with James Croft about a couple of weeks ago. And if you know James or know about him, it was as fun and engaging as you would imagine. And if you haven't heard of James, you are about to. But before we dive headlong into a conversation about philosophy, community, and politics, just a couple of announcements and updates. First of all, this month, and this is now the 3rd of June, 2019, we are running a fun special offer for all new members. If you join between now and June 21st, you will receive a limited edition custom magnet that I designed myself to show off your support for Life After God. You can see what the magnet looks like on our Instagram page at Our Life After God or on our Facebook page. And while you're there, follow Life After God and stay in touch with everything we're doing. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and join at the member level, which is $5. And not only will you have access to the Life After God Facebook group and other special events that we hold, but I'll send you this limited edition magnet while supplies last. The current members already have theirs, and I'm getting pictures of them from around the world, which is super fun. I hope you'll join today and get yours before they're gone. Also this month, we are hosting our second live panel discussion for members entitled Grief and Loss After God. Our panelists are former Life After God guest Garrett Price, who is a licensed professional counselor. Brian Peck, who is no stranger to anyone who's been around the Life After God community. He is a licensed clinical social worker in practice in Idaho. And Rachel Roth, who is a grief support specialist and also a part of the Life After God community going back many years. Beth Roberts will be moderating along with myself. This event is happening on Friday evening, June 28th at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. If you're a member, you can sign into this live web event and participate in the discussion by asking questions and sharing your experience and perspective. So many of us have gone through experiences of loss and grief uh, in the time since we've been Christians, and we've definitely, all of us, had a change in perspective about what those experiences mean and how to navigate them. So I hope you'll join us for this special event. If you're new to being post-theistic, or if you've left your faith recently, or if you're still in the midst of figuring out what you believe, this conversation should be very, very helpful to you. A link to the event invitation is in the show notes, so check it out, mark your calendar, and make plans to join us. If you're not a member already, just go to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and just join at the member level or higher, and you'll receive the link to log into the event in the day before the event takes place. Finally, I have a special bonus episode coming next week. Gretchen Koch will be my guest. She is an artist, a cartoonist, and member of the Life After God community. 
She will be telling the story of the day Dr. George Tiller was murdered by anti-abortion activists. Her parents were members of the same church and in attendance that day when Dr. Tiller was shot and killed. You won't want to miss that conversation, so tune in next week for that. If all that went by too fast for you or you're driving and didn't get all the details, I'll include everything in the show notes. So just go to lifeaftergod.org and find all the information there under this episode. Also, don't hesitate to write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I always love hearing from you. If you appreciate what we're doing, I also encourage you to support the podcast by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to our social media, and by making a recurring monthly contribution at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Today, as I said, my guest is James Croft. He is a leader at the Ethical Society of St. Louis and an activist for many different causes. I asked him to introduce himself right at the start of the conversation, so let me just say, by way of personal reflection, that James has that rare combination of a sharp mind and a pastoral heart. He cares deeply for people, even when his commitment to justice and equality puts him in opposition to some of those people. We may not always agree in the details, but James is an ally in the struggle for freedom and justice, and I'm thrilled to be able to share this conversation with you. James Croft, what a delight to have you on the Life After God podcast today. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I think I say this to every guest that I have on the show, but I feel like this is overdue. Like we've been chatting about talking in more depth about some things for a long time. And so here we finally are. And I'm really grateful for your time. I know how busy you are leading a a community there in St. Louis, which I hope to hear a bit more about. Um, So by way of getting started, uh, why don't you just for our listeners who may not know you, just give us a little introduction. What who are you? What do you do? Where do you live and all that? Okay, so I'm James Croft. I'm the outreach director of the Ethical Society of St. Louis which is a humanist congregation in St. Louis, Missouri. I moved to St. Louis after about seven years living in Boston, where I was doing graduate work. I did a master's and a doctoral degree in education and human development. I studied a ton of different things there, though my doctoral dissertation was on the philosophy of education. I particularly looked at intellectual autonomy and freedom of mind and what that means and how to foster it within public schools in particular. And what school was that from? That was Harvard? That was at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, yeah. I moved to America to do a master's there, and I absolutely fell in love with it, the Mm. professors and the content. It's a very, very progressive educational place, and it was an exciting time to be there. And I just couldn't just have one year master's program. I wanted more, so I applied to the doctoral program and got into that and stayed there for another six years. And it was an amazing experience. But towards the end of that, I decided I wanted to go somewhere slightly different than academia. Mm. And I found out about these things called ethical societies, which are basically churches without God. They're congregations which do all the sorts of things that a regular religious congregation does without belief in God or the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And when I found that, I thought, wow, this is really what I want to do. I want to talk about big questions. How should we live? And what's the meaning of life? And what are we doing in this strange, wonderful cosmos? But I don't necessarily just want to talk to academic philosophers about that. I want to talk to everybody. And so this is the kind of way that I get to do that. That's amazing. And so as the outreach director, and I think we can now tell the world the, uh, I guess, 
I don't know what the terminology, the proper terminology is for it. You're you're the up and coming uh, leader of the ethical society there. Once um, Kate Lovelace uh, retires a bit later this year, is that correct? Yeah, Kate Lovelady is the current senior leader. So ethical societies have a weird formal term for their clergy, their professional community leaders, mm. which is leader. So that's kind of the equivalent to an honorific like rabbi or reverend or something like that. Mm. So I am a, a leader. I'm one of the clergy there. But from next year, when Kate retires, she's been there like 14 years or so at that mm. point, she'll move on to other things. And I have just been voted by the congregation to take her place. And that's one of the interesting and cool things about ethical societies is that we are democratic congregations. So the congregation gets to choose who their leaders are. And that just happened last week, actually. Oh, so congratulations. It's kind of new. Yeah, thank you. It's really exciting and it's very humbling. It's a big community. We've got almost 400 pledging members wow. and our programs reach hundreds of people every week. And so we have tons of people coming through the door and we're doing everything we can to promote humanism. So it's kind of a, like being a, a head of a reasonably large local nonprofit. And so it's very scary, mm. but it's also very exciting. Yeah. And, and apologies to Kate for getting her name wrong a second ago. Um, she's definitely not loveless. She's full of love. love. She's one of the most loving people I know. She's the love lady. Yes. yes. It's a wonderful name. It I is. I wish I had a name like that. I've known a few lovelesses and I thought, how unfortunate. Um, you know, I mean, we're all just born with the name we're born with. We don't have much to do with it. But uh, she was uh, lucky in that sense to get a she good She hit one. the jackpot, especially yeah. for her work. Yeah. So uh, before we jump into some questions about, about humanism, I, you've piqued my interest uh, again about the ethical societies. And I, it's interesting, I was clergy for 20 years in a Seventh-day Adventist church and was quite, I think, you know, if I don't mind saying so myself, pretty well versed in the interfaith world. I'd spent the last 10 years of my ministry really in the, deep in the interfaith community of Los Angeles, which involved religions that I didn't even know existed when I first started into that work. And I had still never heard of the ethical society, but it goes back to the middle of the 19th century. It's is not, uh, you know, some Sunday assembly, uh, Johnny come lately sort of uh, movement. This has been going on for 150 plus years. Yeah, it's, it's about 140 something years. And it was founded by a guy called Felix Adler, who was the son of a prominent New York rabbi a temple called Temple Emmanuel, which is still a significant temple in New York today. And he was expected to take over his father's role. So they sent him to Germany to study religion. And like many young people, he kind of rebelled mm. and took a sidestep into philosophy instead of religion. And he studied with a lot of Neo-Kantian philosophers. And he came to the conclusion that in his own mind, he couldn't justify believing in the traditional personal God of the Hebrew scriptures. And so he came back to the United States and he was invited to give a sermon at his father's temple. And he gave this very passionate speech about what he called the Judaism of the future, which was a universal religion based on ethics, which got rid of the idea of the Jewish people being a chosen people, but instead opened it up to all humanity and also got rid of the idea of a personal God. Now, his father's temple weren't 
in for that, but he <laughs> inspired enough of their members to get them to move off with him to start something new. And that became the New York Society for Ethical Culture, which eventually built an absolutely enormous city block size building on Central Park West and 63rd Street, mm. which is still there today. And he kind of went around the country at the end of the 19th century and ev everywhere he went, he spoke about his idea of what he considered a new religion, which was just based on treating each other well and was kind of creedally agnostic. It didn't have any formal religious creed or metaphysical concepts. So people could believe in God or not believe in God. They could consider themselves religious or not as they wished, but they were there at the ethical society to become more ethical, which he thought was at the heart of all religious traditions. And people were very inspired by him. He was a, clearly a great orator. He was a very accomplished philosophical thinker. He spoke numerous ancient languages. He believed that you had to be able to read all the great religious texts in the original ancient languages. So he <laughs> new hebrew and sanskrit and all these other languages wow, in yeah. order to read them and he he was a very charismatic person and so people decided that they wanted to start ethical societies and the saint louis society is one of the furthest west of the large societies i think the furthest west of them because of course he started in new york and started moving out to the west and it was established about 135 years ago so we've been in the town a long long time and you said 400-some pledging members, I guess that means they're like officially on the books yes. and contributing in some way. Exactly. They're officially on the books and contributing, although I stress that we are open to everyone regardless of their financial means. So people sure. can pledge no money and they can still be a member. There's no minimum pledge. But those are the people who have signed a pledge form and said, we want to become members of this community and they get a name tag and everything. So it's, you know, you really get lots of benefits. And you have a, a Sunday service, right? Like a typical time of time of day for a church service, like around 11 a.m. or something. Yes, it's Sunday, 11 a.m. It's an hour long. It involves music. We hire local musicians in a huge range of different musical styles because we want to lift up the diversity and creativity of humanity. Mm. We have opening words from one of our members either about why they're a member of the community or something that's on their mind at the time. And then there's a 30-minute talk, which is sort of sermonic. It's a, our equivalent of a sermon, which is supposed to inspire people, make them think, help them learn about something and live their lives better. And that's either done by myself or Kate, one of the professional leaders, or a couple of times every month we bring in outside speakers mm. because we want to reinforce the idea that we can learn from everyone. And it's not just people who have a sort of special spiritual or religious authority right. who can teach you things. Everyone can teach you something. And so we have activists and academics and community organizers and artists and a whole range of extraordinary people. I did, uh, in, a, in a strange twist of circumstances, I visited your uh, ethical society while you were unfortunately out of town uh, tending yes. to a family uh, emergency. So I have a visual in my mind as I'm talking to you of the space, and it's so beautiful, and, uh, and, and yet I didn't get to see you there. I've, we've met, of course, other places, but um, it is a beautiful space, and it's just, I think, if I could, if, if I could, you know, rub a little pot and have three wishes you know i i think 
having more of these kinds of communities around the country would be, I think, so advantageous. And yet I feel like so many atheists who are post-theist are, have a, a real fear about this kind of community or they don't, they feel maybe sort of um, burned out on it. Is your group made up of people that have been religious in the past primarily, or are you seeing an, an influx of people who perhaps haven't been strongly related to religion in the past and are finding it maybe for the first time in this humanistic way? We have both. I think you're absolutely right that many people who come from a religious background are skeptical about joining a congregational organization at all. And I appreciate and understand that skepticism. A lot of people have had very bad experiences. And when they come into a space that feels in any way churchy, although I think we work quite hard to make our Sunday mornings not feel churchy, but to some people they still do, they get nervous. And I totally understand that. And we have members Well, it ranges from people who grew up Catholic, a lot of former Catholics in St. Louis, which is a major Catholic town. The name is a bit of a giveaway there. (laughs) We have members who used to be Mormon. We have members who were parts of very small, closed Christian evangelical communities, like close to cults, really. I think some of them would describe them as cults Mm. who are recovering from their religious past. And we have plenty of members who have never been religious, who were raised non-religious, but they want a moral community. And I think that that's the thing that we offer that's distinct to secular community building organizations, Mm. which are also very important and wonderful, and I, I love them. But what we offer that's distinct is we're a community that comes together around a certain set of values, and we're unapologetic about promoting those values and encouraging people to live by them. And so people who feel like they want to grapple with the big questions of life that religions traditionally ask, but they don't like traditional religious answers, often they find a home at the Ethical Society of St. Louis because they can ask those big questions, not be presented with a dogma, something they must believe, but with a series of suggestions about what they might believe, which hopefully are conveyed in an amusing and inspiring manner. Mm. And they're invited into a dialogue about what the how those values might play out in their individual lives and in their families and their other types of commitments that they have at work and at home and in politics and the rest, it sounds like. Yes, yes. The mode is very dialogic in the sense that we never present what we present as something that must be believed or is the result of some super special insight that only we can get. We try and make arguments based our reasoning off scientific evidence or our own experience, some sort of evidentiary basis for what we're offering. And then we give many opportunities for members to discuss and talk back to us. So it's not just they're hearing an input and then they have to take the input or leave it. It's indeed an invitation into a conversation so i'll give a presentation about some ethical topic and then we'll go downstairs after the main sunday community meeting and have a smaller room where people can come and ask questions and discuss and sometimes my members will come in and say i really was made angry by what you had to say about this and i'll i'll say good Hmm. Mm -hmm. that's good you've been challenged by something tell me what made you angry and you don't have to agree with me I want to hear what you think because this is because I could be wrong. And and one of the things I love is that, you know, we try and be critical about our own values. 
So just to give an example, I give it a talk a couple of years back now about how I think one of the core values of our Sunday school is not right <laughs> and we should change it. And I tried to lay out an argument as to why I didn't think it was quite correct. And so we we try and be reflective and self-critical because we don't want to turn into an echo chamber and we certainly don't want to become a dogmatic place, which is just repeating the same things because we've decided that they're true. Hmm. Sounds lovely. And I hope that your uh, non-tribe will increase. <laughs> no, it is a tribe in a way, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it, you know, in the positive sense of those yes. words. Yeah, it's a group of people who treats each other generally very well and has a strong sense of community. Yeah, I'm happy using that word. Yeah, I agree. And um, and I know that you know we grapple with this word religion sometimes. And as as someone like you who studied religion academically, I you know I recognize that there are different ways of using that very complicated word but at its most basic level it definitely seems like the impulse of gathering with another with a larger group of people to talk about the issues and the topics and the the um, needs that you have as a person uh, and and the the questions that you face is a, a kind of a religious impulse to, to sort of sort of transcend your own thinking and enter into a community experience of the transcendent, even if that transcendent isn't uh, metaphysical and sort of non-material, um, uh, a kind of space where people can engage with each other around these important questions. It seems yes. like a kind of religion to me that it would be fantastic to see more of. Yeah, and many, many of our members think of ethical humanism as their religion, and many of our members do not think of it as a religion, but as a sort of philosophical perspective or a way of life mm -hmm. and regardless of how people view it or what term people use i think you're right in that it invites people into a communal experience that goes beyond our individual engagement with any set of ideas or even with our own lives but puts our lives within the context of a community, not just the community of the people who are present any particular Sunday, or even the community of people who have been members of the Ethical Society over its history, but hopefully through the talks and presentations, which often bring in, you know, philosophers' thoughts from the past and things like that, to a sort of tradition of thought that extends back quite a long way. I mean, the tradition of humanism, depending on how you trace it, can be seen to have very deep roots in human history. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we're inviting people to participate in that. And one of my main goals as a leader of this community is to help people feel a connection with something that's bigger and grander than themselves, not because it's metaphysically superior because it's like a god or a spirit or anything supernatural above the mundane empirical reality in which we find ourselves but because we are as a matter of fact participants in history and in a culture that's that preceded us and will be there when we are gone so that to recognize that is merely to come to deeper appreciation of the reality of human life i remember having a conversation with a, an atheist um, within the first week or two of my year without God in 2014. And so I was just barely into exploring atheism, let alone humanism. And I remember saying to this guy, but don't you think, like whether there's a personal God or not, don't you think that there's something bigger than us? Like there has to be more than just, you know, our individual existence in this world. Isn't there something 
bigger than us? And he said, without missing a beat, as if he'd been asked that question many times before, um, yes, there is something bigger than us. And that's everybody else. And I was like, oh, that's good. You know, it just immediately made sense to me that it wasn't just him and me having this conversation, but that we are, as you just said, participating in a a discourse, in a, a shared life that goes back, you know, long before we were born and will continue long after. And there's artifacts of that life and in art and literature and music and, and philosophy and all the rest that informs the way that we think like we, and to me, this goes a little bit to how we sometimes think that we're these rational beings. And if, if, if by that we mean rational, like, you know, sort of pristine minds, you know, like a, almost like a, a computer that's fresh out of the box, you know, with no context. And, and we're not like that, are we? We're, we're very much a part of our lived experience and the lived experience of so many people before us. And, and that makes, I think that makes life interesting, um, but it certainly makes it more complicated. Yeah, it does. It does make it more complicated and that can bring particular challenges. But I think, as you say, it's more interesting in multiple ways and it's, it's enriching. I think that, and it's true, right? We can't believe ourselves to be atomized individuals with no genuine connection to either other people or to the kind of common cultural conversation into which we are born. I, I think that it, that just cuts off so much of our humanity. And I, I've always been deeply influenced by the Renaissance humanists, who, of course, were mostly religious thinkers themselves and had a different understanding of what humanism was than the word we use today. But I've always been moved by Erasmus, who translated that famous Christian dictum, you know, in the beginning there was the word, as in the beginning there was the conversation causing a massive kind of ruckus in the church at the time, Mm. but more accurately representing, I think, what the original text in fact says, because logos means conversation, not word. And that's the spirit in which I think of this transcendent element of humanism. It's the participation in the human conversation. All the great parts of that are extraordinary achievements as a species and all the terrible parts of that, all the ways that we continue to oppress and degrade and humiliate each other. And I think that appreciating our part in that conversation is something that communities like ethical societies can help people with. So you're talking about ethics and ethical societies. How would you sort of describe the ethical framework that you and this community adopts? And I, I realize it's probably not one thing, obviously, but how would you describe sort of the, the ethical um, approach that, that you take? It's a really interesting philosophical question because humanism as a tradition is not committed to any particular framework for understanding ethics, philosophically speaking. So all humanists are not utilitarians or consequentialists even, or all humanists are not, you know, idealists or whatever. Rather, I think what defines our approach is a series of value statements that people can derive however they derive them, but our community is committed to as a whole, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And those value statements, I think the clearest way that we 
express them in our community is actually in our Sunday Ethical Education for Kids program, which is our, our Sunday school, essentially, that has 11 core values that we teach the kids and we base the whole program around. And I think those are the crispest expressions of the values of our community. And they're things like every person is important and unique. Every person deserves to be treated fairly and kindly. I can learn from everyone. I'm part of this earth. I cherish it and all the life upon it. I am free to question. I'm free to choose what I believe. I accept responsibility for my choices and actions. I strive mm. to live my values. That was eight of them. I can never remember all 11 <laughs> off the top of my head. Or a different but, eight next time, but never all 11, right? right? Yeah. Yes, I never get them all at once. <laughs> but I think that those sorts of value statements are what are the core of the community. So you can be a member of our community, regardless of your religious or metaphysical beliefs, regardless of the kind of philosophical approach that you take to get there, as long as you can affirm every person is important and unique. Every person deserves to be treated fairly and kindly. I can learn from everyone. So if, if you can affirm those value statements, I think that then you're within the kind of core values of our community and that's what really defines it that's what we go back to to decide whether for instance we really want a particular speaker or idea presented mm. to our community because we don't take everyone right we wouldn't sometimes right. people write to us and say i'd really like to present for your community and we think uh no and the way that we decide that is by asking does it fit into those values sure. it's not by asking are they a philosophical idealist? You know, that's sure. not the way that we do it. So uh, that I think is the best way I have a, of explaining that. Do you worry at all? And I guess I, I'd love to know both individually and as a community, do you worry about grounding those values in some kind of like, like my, I, I'm like a hopeless foundationalist, even though I, I, I understand the problems with foundationalism. I, I feel like I just, I can't get away from it in some sense. And so I'm always sort of saying, okay, what's under that? Okay. So if all human beings are, have value, like why do they have value? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then, and then whatever that answer is, well, why, you know? <laughs> so like what's underneath for you that humans have value and, and should be free to make choices and the, all the rest. So you did a podcast recently about moral realism, right? And I strongly recommend everyone listen to that because I think that that was a, a really good start to exploring these questions. I will say that as a community at the Ethical Society, we have programs of adult education and, and in philosophy as well, where our members who are interested in these deeper philosophical questions can come and explore them. And we definitely do teach and have discussion around questions like this. For instance, Kate and I just taught a class which is sort of an introduction to the humanist life stance over three days. And one of the sections was precisely about how do we know what is good? Mm -hmm. And it explored philosophically the question of sort of how do you ground a humanistic ethics? But I will say that many of our members, I think this is true of many congregations, come because our values reflect what they believe, not because they can necessarily give a philosophically coherent defense of those values in a way that would convince, you know, a reviewer for a philosophy journal. Sure. For many people, that's beyond the level they feel they need to get. And I think that that in itself is probably quite revealing. But But I worry about that. Of course I do. I'm a philosopher. I want my ideas to be well justified and defensible and reasonable and all that. And I think I take the view that firstly, 
literally any set of foundational claims is is susceptible to skepticism. Sure. You can always ask why of any claim that anybody makes. And so at some point, you just have to decide that you have adequate reasons for your moral beliefs. And we can talk about what sort of epistemic criteria would make something a set of adequate reasons. Or you can just be a moral skeptic and say, no, I don't think there's really any sufficient justifications. But but my feeling is that we happen to be organisms that have what I would call valence-infused experiences. We have experiences of flourishing and suffering, if you want to use that terminology. Mm -hmm. And that is a brute fact that we have to deal with. No moral system can make sense that doesn't take into account the fact that we have those morally inflected experiences. Hmm. We feel that some things are good for us and some things are bad for us. And ethics is a process of trying to explain what that means. It's not a process of trying to, I, I guess, if we wanted to talk about why those experiences came into place, we could talk about evolutionary psychology for a long time and and talk about how we got to the um, sensations that we have within us. But I think we have to simply accept as a fact we have positive and negative experiences. And then an ethic is a thing that tries to help us understand how to maximize positive experiences and minimize negative ones. Now you might ask, well, why maximize the positive experiences? I think that's a meaningless question, honestly. Mm. I, I, I think that once you have experiences that have values built into them, you just have to accept that that's what you're dealing with and trying to explain. Asking the question, well, why is good good? is not really sensible. Yeah. Now that it takes a long time to explain an argument from the ground up that could get you from there to something like a declaration of human rights. But I but I actually think that the problem of grounding morality has potentially been hugely overcomplicated by philosophers and that it may be simpler than a lot of people think. I mean as a matter of fact most philosophies do take certain fundamental moral principles if not for granted to be foundational in their own systems yeah i can definitely see that in in like community organizing work and and in political movements for sure i mean we just sort of start by by taking for granted that freedom is a sort of universally sought after um good and and i guess if you wanted to sort of find some simple grounding for that it's as you say everywhere you look, people value freedom. So there you go. Like It's like everybody values freedom and you can spend a lot of time. And of course, I love these conversations in the same way that you do. But for someone who uh, is being thrown in prison, say, for example, for some something they said against a political leader, um, you know, they know instinctively and we all sort of feel that that's not right. You know, that's a infringement upon that person's freedom and you know we could go on and on about other examples but there is as you say this kind of um universal sense that um we we all sort of crave the our autonomy and we we have a kind of a sense of what wellness feels like and looks like yeah, right. And we're building on that to create moral frameworks. That's what I think. And if we had a different set of priorities as an organism, our ethics would look very different. I mean, they are contingent on the, our nature as a species. Right. And I think that, but that doesn't mean that they're arbitrary. We're building on a really existing basis, which is 
our nature. And we didn't just come into existence yesterday. Like, so there's some some history here of uh, yeah right we've got a lot to work with and we have our own awareness of our own desires right and those yes we i think it has to start there right and i think it's and i think this other like this this the kind of theory of other minds kind of thing where if if you and i are talking and and you just got evicted from your apartment say for no good reason um and i i can immediately imagine what that would feel like because that happened to me once or or because it's about to happen to me or just because i can sort of conjure that feeling in my mind uh yes. what that would feel like and i think gosh that's not fair <laughs> right yeah right i think that it does start with us projecting our own basic value set onto the other organisms that we experience who we believe have other minds. And we don't just do this with human beings. I've just become Mm. a dog owner. My husband, Colton, had a dog when we met and we lived with him for a while. And sadly, he died earlier this year. Mm. And now we have another one, a little puppy, a chihuahua puppy. She's in the other room yapping at me right now because she (laughs) wants to be out here. And it's made me think about how how we treat other animals, non-human animals. Mm. And it made me think that Sometimes these philosophical questions about morality, if you give an example, it becomes kind of much clearer that questions about grounding seem to miss something very fundamental about the moral conversation. So if if someone wanted to harm my dog, right, and told me, well, why shouldn't I break your puppy's leg? Right. Right. What sort of arguments could I give them to convince them? Well, I could say, well, it would hurt my puppy and they never did anything to you and they're not capable of doing you harm. And, you know, I could give a series of what sound like reasons. Right. And if they said, Oh, but why does it matter if it would hurt? That doesn't actually sound like a philosophical objection. That sounds like some sort of psychopathy, right? Right. That doesn't sound (laughs) right. When you put it, just, just put it on a different animal than a human being. Why should I care that I'm causing suffering to this other animal? Right. And and I think that if if you if you actually had people who were really willing to act like that, right, who who have said no, you have no justification for preventing me from hurting your puppy, then at the very least, I think we can say, well, you can provide me with no moral justification to prevent you from doing it, because mm-hmm. any justification that you would provide me would be contrary to your own moral reasoning. I can use the same criticisms you've used against my moral reasoning against you to justify my restraining you or even killing you. I mean, if you can break my dog's leg because it doesn't matter, cause suffering, I can break your leg to prevent it. So at the very least, I think we have a very strong justification for preventing others from harming us. And that's actually quite good. Hmm. I don't think that, that other people can justify on the basis of simply saying, oh, morals have no grounding, that they should be able to hurt us, but we shouldn't be able to prevent them. And that's actually quite a good place to start. And I think once you build from there, you can get to some some fairly common broad moral principles. But I accept that you know no philosopher is going to be convinced by the sketch of the arguments that we've been presenting. It, it's a lot longer conversation, but that's where I tend to begin. Right. And I think the purpose that a philosopher would have to engage these questions is quite different than um, the purpose of a community leader or just a, an individual trying to make their way in the world um, or a parent trying to pass on good values to their children or you know me here at the Secular Student Alliance trying to figure out 
you know, how, what's the best way to sort of encourage our students to do good in the world. And so th- those are much more like feet on the ground uh, type of environments. And of course, we need the philosophers. Uh, we don't all, we can't all do everything. I mean, this is one of the, the great frustrations of, of, uh, of life, I think, for, for many of us, that there's not enough time in life to explore all the things that we would like to, to do. And, and frankly, we're not all good at everything. And so we, yes. we, need, um, we need other people to, to uh, explore these things for us. And, and then we need people like you and hopefully me, it's sort of in the middle, sort of being you know, somewhat like explainers of, of these things to people and, and help them uh, navigate these waters themselves. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate that sort of down and dirty approach uh, as well um, as the more academic approach. So if we take your puppy example and <clears throat> we project it further out onto a wider landscape of, say, uh, the elections that are happening tomorrow in Europe, um, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we maximize good and minimize harm and that sort of thing. Uh, and again, I'm just sort of spitballing here as my as a transition into <laughs> some of the conversations. Yeah, Let's talk about politics. Yeah, to politics. Like you and I have been talking on in various uh, ways with our our friends on Facebook and and Twitter and so forth. Um, you know, how do your ethical values um, take shape in the political realm? I think that's a really interesting and difficult question because politics is really complicated. And very often when we're making political decisions, I think we're working in situations where we have inadequate information and we don't really know for certain the results of our actions. And I think that's just a basic condition of political action, that we're dealing with huge problems which are way beyond the kind of regular moral framework of interpersonal relationships between us and people we genuinely know where we can probably do pretty much okay in our moral decisions, although, goodness, I mess up enough to know that even that's difficult. But when we're dealing about politics and talking about making laws that govern millions of people's lives and shape economic systems and govern the relationships between nations, that's incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. And so how do you operationalize a kind of set of values like our Sunday school's core values and put it into political practice. I think the first thing that I tend to believe is that because humanism, in my understanding, is based on a series of values, and because a set of values could be operationalized in multiple ways within the political sphere, it makes sense that there's going to be a plurality of political opinions among humanists. And although it's a bounded plurality, right? There's certainly political views that are not compatible with those core values of humanism. Mm, mm-hmm. there, are, there are quite a lot that are probably compatible with humanism. Like I definitely think that you could make a humanistic case for different and incompatible specific political policies. And a part of the reason why you can do that is because of that problem I outlined of not actually really knowing what the results of many of our policies are going to be. But I do think that there are some concrete things that you you would have to be committed to as a humanist operating in the political sphere. And this is how I try and direct my own activism, both 
as the outreach director of the Ethical Society of St. Louis and as a an activist who cares about the state of our society and culture, hmm. I, I think that you have to have some respect for some concept of human rights, whether you use that terminology or not, some basic set of principles about how individual human beings ought to be treated and ought not to be treated, both by other individuals and by the state and other organizations. And it's particularly telling to me that humanists played a significant role in the founding of the UN and numerous UN institutions like UNESCO, for instance, and that what is is called in the UN the, the new humanism was was one of the founding philosophical drivers that led to things like the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. And I think that's a, a highly humanistic document in many ways, mm-hmm. that enumerating the ways that people are politically inviolable. You cannot torture someone. You cannot make them stateless. You cannot prevent them from starting a family, these sorts of things. So I think some concept of the inviolability of the individual human person, which is central, at least to my understanding of humanism, would have to be reflected in the political sphere. And that means, of course, rejecting political philosophies, which would explicitly counter that. Today, I think the biggest threat to a broadly humanistic society is the resurgence of extreme right-wing parties and groups, which have explicit policies that are counter-humanist core commitment to the inviolability of the individual, whether it's because of their promotion of racist beliefs and attitudes that that ultimately always find expression in policies for these far-right organizations, whether it's their particular anti-immigrant animus treating immigrants, often as we're seeing in the United States, in ways that we wouldn't want to treat our pets. I mean, it's disgraceful the mm. way that migrants are being treated in the United States currently and in many Western nations as well. Um I mean, there's all sorts of objections you could have to to far-right parties, but I think that those are sort of excluded from the humanist penumbra. Where I think it gets more complicated is, I have friends and colleagues, people I respect, who would say, well, humanism has to be socialist, or it has to be communist, or it has to be anarchist, or it has to be kind of liberal capitalist, or something like that, or even it has to be libertarian. I'm not sure that we can confidently say that any particular political prescription at that level of analysis would result in the most humanistic outcome. Hmm. I think it's easier to say we definitely have a deeply iniquitous society in which both political and economic, particularly economic system, contributes to enormous wealth inequality across the globe and huge inequalities in access to political power and voice, and that that cannot be compatible with humanism. And so there is definitely a strong anti-capitalist strand within humanism. Mm -hmm. I think it's less clear which alternative, if there is one, will lead to better outcomes than the ones we have now. And I think that for me is a big challenge. And I, I always want to remain flexible and you know, true to another humanist commitment, non-dogmatic in my approach to politics and and take the options as they come and think, which is likely to be the best right now for this policy in which I'm voting, for instance, or which I'm doing activism and not 
be so rigidly committed to a particular political view that I can't recognize the deep deficits in information that we're working with and the fact that a single value set can play out in politics in many different ways. Hopefully that wasn't too complicated an answer. No, not at all. I love it. And I, you know, you're, I, I love, uh, uh, the way that you, you speak very precisely both, I think because you're a regular public speaker and you've had some training in, in these subjects. And so I, I appreciate the clarity. Uh, it's going to make for <clears throat> great listening. Um, I I wonder well let let me start let me start this way as a pastor I was trained to be a peacemaker I was trained to be a reconciler a mediator and to not take sides I mean I watched clergy in my denomination split congregations in record time and I could I could never imagine how they could pull that off I mean I I would see tra- pastors transferred from congregation to congregation and within a month or two, there was already a split emerging in the church. And I remember telling myself and learning, I suppose, in seminary and so forth, you know, not to, that my role was not to um, decide what the outcome of a particular proposal would be, but to facilitate the process by which people would come up with outcomes. And I, I really, um, really believe that, you know, and I really believe that to be humanists, we have to take people seriously. Um, and I think a lot of leadership models in general don't take people seriously. And I see it in, in our political discourse around Trump voters. And, you know, there's, there's Trump voters and then there's Trump voters, right? Like, like you said, there's a lot of information that we don't have. We can't, you know, political scientists and, and, and pollsters and, uh, journalists are trying to get inside the minds of each and every voter. And really what they want to do is sort of have this aggregate picture of a Trump voter. But there is no such thing really, right, as an aggregate picture of a Trump voter. There are Trump voters. And, and or, or like Alabama and Missouri and Texas and Georgia in the last week all instituting various versions of an abortion ban um, and people saying, you know, let's just get everybody out of Alabama that ca- cares about this. And I, I just, there's a part of me that feels like people, the people there are are important, right? Like, how can we even pretend to care about politics if, if we're saying that the people that are living under those regimes, even if they purport to support the the negative side of that equation, um are are still important people and i think that there's a lot of learning i've had to do in recent years about like where i draw the line you know whether whether there are some people that are clearly bad actors and shouldn't be tolerated perhaps or shouldn't be even given a platform maybe uh under some circumstances so um but on the other hand there are a lot of rank and file voters that are really important to this country's future and need to be uh, reached out to, and I wonder, you know, in, if if you have this feeling too, like like our political environment at the moment is sort of forcing us to be more staunch in some of our views. Like I'm not, and you might not know this if if you only know me from Twitter, but um, but I'm really not by nature a combative, confrontational person. Like I don't prefer that mode 
uh, of communication at all. But I feel like in the last five or six years, we've been forced into a zero-sum game around certain political contexts, whether it be, like you said, racism or poverty and, or, or the rights of women to adequate health care or, or, what, or what have you, and, and this sort of plea for a kind of centrism and, and, and what that actually means. And I guess to wrap up this sort of rambling comment, I'd, I don't want to be a centrist at all, and I will not be a centrist on whether, you know, black people are over-policed or not. You know, they are over-policed. And that's not, for me, negotiable. What is negotiable is how we go about, you know, solving that problem. And there's certain kinds of non-negotiables in there too. But, but how do you sort through the, 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 this sort of task of having commitments and values and principles that you're willing to go to the mat for and at the same time, sort of, to, for lack of a better word, being a pastor to people who may not be, or in your mind, might be part of the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, that that last formulation of the question really hits home. I moved to St. Louis in June of 2014 as a trainee. I'd never lived in a city as small as St. Louis. I'm from London in England, and I lived in Cambridge in England and then Cambridge in America and then now uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and it's in the Midwest or the South, depending on how people understand it. And it is a smaller city than I'm used to. It's much more conservative than any environment that I've lived in. And I moved in June 2014. In August 2014, Mike Brown was murdered Mm. and the city and its surrounding area became this hotbed of this revival of anti-racist activism. And I confronted that question head on because I was a trainee in my congregation. I was new there. No one really knew me at all. And I didn't know them. And I didn't know what our members' beliefs were about anything to do with racism and anti-racism. I personally struggled a lot with the question of what is it appropriate for a clergy person of a community to say in a situation like this. And I came down very quickly on the side of saying this is a clear injustice. It's a moral outrage. It's happening in our backyard that it would be completely inconsistent for a community to call itself the Ethical Society of St. Louis and to remain silent or not be present while people are literally fighting for their lives in the streets, are literally calling out for their dignity to be respected and recognized by the state, which is supposed to serve and promote their liberty. And so I did start speaking about that within the congregation. I attended a lot of protests. I got arrested. I've got, I went to hundreds and hundreds of protests in that first year. Sometimes it was three a day. Mm-hmm. It was happening just constantly. And I was very present. It was a very interesting experience as a humanist because the way I got into those protests was through the clergy coalition that developed the very quickly, a kind of core group of clergy who developed to respond to that. And I was an unusual voice there because I don't believe in God. And I kind of demand that people recognize that a lot of people are not religious, including, you know, a lot of people of color are not religious and they don't often feel very represented by the religious, uh, 
nature of a lot of the activism that's going on. That's something I heard repeatedly while I was out on the streets. Um, but it, it did cause some challenges within the community. We had people leave the ethical society because they supported the police narrative and that. And I was, I felt hugely guilty because I thought, well, here I am, I'm supposed to be helping them grow their community. And, and, now people are leaving because of me right? Yep. <laughs> because because i said you know we have to take a stand this is what this community is for it is not a philosophical club ultimately it is not a discussion group it's a moral community that says every sunday morning we have a kid read those core values every person is important and unique every person deserves to be treated fairly and kindly well that doesn't mean getting shot dead on the street just for walking down the street of your neighborhood. That doesn't fit into those values. So we have to do something about it. And so the challenge of how do you do that in a pastoral way? How do you make clear moral stances that are not compromising in the sense that they compromise your values, Mm -hmm. but that are responsive to the humanity of the people who disagree mm-hmm. and that is a tension i feel all the time and and i think it sounds like you're feeling it a bit too that it's difficult to hold to those things for, for me in a way actually they're the same commitment it's right. all about every person is important and unique it's mike brown is important and unique so is so are the members of my congregation who left because they didn't support the movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and so are the police. So is Darren Wilson, who shot Mike Brown. He's important and unique. How do you hold that all together? Well, I don't think it's by being so compromising that you never take a moral stand. That is the ultimate abandonment of your moral commitment. Mm -hmm. So that can't be right. What I think the way through is, is to say, no, I'm standing here, and this is the right place for me to stand because of these moral reasons but i see you standing on the opposite side and i see that you're a person i recognize that you have an inner life and that you came to the views that you have for some set of reasons and i that means that even though i oppose you and i am going to politically work against your desires essentially i want to see a different sort of world than the one that you want to see right now i'm not going to demean you I'm not going to attempt to coerce you physically or through uh, I'm very skeptical about the use of shame, for instance, partly because I'm a gay man. I've had a lot of experiences with shame myself. So I I personally forswear the use of shame, Mm -hmm. except in the most extreme circumstances. It's not not to say I won't say that things are shameful. But for instance, I've been at many protests where people would chant shame at the police. And I won't do that because that's not how I want to engage in, in those things. Um. And, and na- navigating that tension is very difficult. And it's increasingly difficult for me, I'll be honest, within contemporary social justice culture. Sometimes that culture seems very vengeful, quite dogmatic, quite unwilling to appreciate that our opponents are human beings and they have a claim upon our moral concern as well, even while they're opposing us. I think that's an incredibly difficult path to walk. And in a sense, perhaps this brings us back to the start of our discussion. Perhaps that's the most, quotes religious thing about my 
understanding of what humanism is, that I appreciate it's a difficult path and it requires constant negotiation of what seem like competing moral demands. And what I ask of my fellow activists is not that they engage in activism the exact same way that I do, but that they appreciate that my choices come from a hopefully well-reasoned and deeply moral place and that they don't require I do my activism the same way they do. Mm -hmm. I have a place in the ecology of activism right now that is about holding space for everybody's dignity as hard as possible. And, and I found that there are a lot of clergy, particularly of different religious traditions, who understand what that means. And, and that puts a different bounds on what we're willing to do than some other activists who, who do not necessarily operate primarily from that place. I don't know if that yeah. makes any sense, but no. I'm kind of trying to work through this with you. <laughs> no, I, it does. And I think you're, as you say, in this contemporary culture, um, it's it's somewhat brave actually to to try to even explain it the way you have, um, and I'm you know I'm constantly figuring this out too, as we all are. Uh, I'm 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 you know eminently self doubtful you know all the time. I'm like questioning myself, and you know I feel compelled to to speak uh, speak up for people who are being marginalized or oppressed or mistreated. And at the same time, not to overstep as a as a as a white straight cisgendered white man like overstep and pr- like act like I'm a white savior or or something and like what I'm always like evaluating what is my role here should I just shut up and be quiet will my silence be perceived as endorsement um, will my voice be perceived as dominant uh, you know there's all of these questions that are constantly circling in my mind. And I think the thing that stands out to me about your story that you just told about St. Louis is that you worked this out in the crucible of real everyday life. And, and I have lots of stories like that too. And my current story, not nearly so dramatic as um, Mike Brown's uh, murder and the ensuing um, conflict in St. Louis, um, but but I'm a regular participant in my tenants union here in Pasadena and in some other political organizing here in Pasadena in addition to my work. And this keeps me connected to people. And I can see the dynamics play out, not just on Twitter and Facebook, but in real life. And for instance, I was just at City Hall uh, two days ago with the tenants union uh, for public comment. And I was there just to stand with my, my people and two men gave testimony and during the public comment about their um, eviction. Both of them have families. Both of them live in a part of Pasadena that most of our elected officials like to forget that exists. And both of them are being asked to leave their apartments within 60 days for no reason, because we don't have protection uh, for renters in Pasadena that would prevent a, t- a landlord from just simply telling a person they have to leave. Um, Neither of these families have the capacity to handle that. And, you know, I can't get inside the hearts and minds of those city council members to know 
what those stories did to them or what they might choose to do as a result. What I do know is that they've repeatedly, over the last five years, refused to entertain any notions of rent protections uh, for tenants in our city. So I can only assume that if they feel badly about it, they're not willing to do anything about it. And so that makes me opposed to them, right? And this is this is the complication. In liberation theology, there's a saying that, that God has a preferential option for the poor, which I think, to me, you know, even taking just taking God out of it is no problem. Uh, but to say that everyone matters, but sometimes certain people think they matter more than others, and they don't. And... Yes. And that we are called to stand on the side of those who have been treated like they don't matter, which means that that puts us in direct conflict with the people who think they matter more than everyone else. And yes. that's an unavoidable conflict that I think for myself, pers- just speaking personally, being raised in such a way that made me a very conflict avoidant person, this is like emotional labor for me <laughs> to be in conflict with people. And uh, but But I feel I have to, you know, I feel that it's part of what I'm... Uh, called to do as a human being um, and as a humanist. And uh, when I see systems especially, and I think one of the biggest problems that we have right now and one of the biggest divisions in politics is that one side of the political spectrum seems to think that all problems and solutions lie in the realm of the individual. And the other side, I think, appropriately sees that these problems and solutions are largely systemic. And I suppose you could say that the left perhaps undervalues the individual component, though that hasn't been my experience when I'm on the ground. For instance, these tenants that are being evicted from their apartments feel terrible. They feel shame. They feel personally responsible for letting their families down, even though this has nothing to do with what they've done. So I think that they are taking adequate measure, right, of their individual autonomy and their individual responsibility, but there's a system at work that's crushing them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I agree with everything that you said. And I hear you when you say that that it, it can be extremely difficult to feel like we're in conflict with other people. I'm not I'm never sure doing an inventory of my own personality whether I'm actually conflict avoidant or not. I hate interpersonal conflict with friends, mm. but I'm actually quite comfortable with political conflict. It gives me no qualms at all to be in a space like a a public hearing or some sort of community forum or something to to say what a politician is doing is wrong if I think it's wrong and why. The interpersonal element is difficult. And I I do want to make a couple of clarifications to things that I've said because I don't I don't want people to misunderstand me. But one thing you brought up is is the idea that now everybody is important, but some people think they're more important than others. And that's absolutely true. And I don't want to say that the concern for the the dignity and worth of every person is the same as an all lives matter response to black lives matter, right? That is not what I'm saying. And indeed we had a really interesting internal conversation at the ethical society about all lives matter Mm. because in, in an isolated context, isolated from context, that statement is a reasonably good distillation of humanism. Right. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and and so many of our members were were thinking, oh no, that that is exactly what we believe. And so explaining that, firstly, the phrase "Black Lives Matter" is not inconsistent in any way with the phrase "All Lives Matter." Right. It is actually totally consistent with it. Um, and also that 
the importance of naming the groups of people who are currently suffering systemic oppressions, that's extremely important because there's a tendency for people who don't, I mean, this is standard social justice terminology now, people who who don't experience those those oppressions to to not see them. And, And I, you talked about kind of working these ideas out in a crucible. That's very much how it felt like to me, I, I will be totally honest with you, Ryan. I don't speak about this very much, but when I was a grad student, I knew absolutely nothing about race and racism. Mm-hmm. And I was that extremely smart, very, very, very overeducated, very opinionated white person who thought that you could reduce every social problem to class or culture or something that's not race right Mm -hmm. so i would make the comments in class about how well affirmative reaction uh, affirmative action just focuses people's attention on race and so it's racist so the best way to get over racism is just to kind of pretend it doesn't exist right i used to say that stuff Mm -hmm. and it really was coming to st louis and um, particularly going to a vigil for people of color who had been victims of police violence when something clicked for me and I started to appreciate, no, this is a systemic problem that I have not, that I just didn't see before. Mm-hmm. And it really opened my eyes to all sorts of systemic injustices. And it's an ongoing process. And I won't say I'm not like Neo. I can't see the matrix now, but to some degree, <laughs> I have a better appreciation of the power dynamics that shape society. And I'm still working to, to develop that. But I, but I think that my experience of not understanding and then getting to a point of understanding gives me two insights that I want to try and hold on to. Firstly, I didn't have a bad intent or bad motives when I was saying those things. I was trying to make sense of the world as I genuinely understood it. Mm-hmm. I just hadn't come into contact with the right sort of educational stimulus to help me make a transition in my thinking. And that gives me hope that people can change their minds and that people can come to understand these things when they didn't, when they've been clueless. Hmm. And at the same time, it makes me a little wary when the initial response to that sort of cluelessness is so often very um, vituperative and personal. Because I think that if I had been personally attacked for saying those things i would have gone full intellectual dark web i think that if i had been Mm. you know in my graduate studies now instead of a few years ago Mm -hmm. when the social justice culture is more uh fully expressed in campus culture i think i i would not have got through that and had the social justice position I have now, I think I would have been an IDW person because I think I would have been so hurt by what I would have perceived as a personal attack on me that I would have retreated into this very rigid understanding that we see. And so I do have some sympathy with these people. I Mm kind of see myself in them to some degree. And, And what I hope to be able to do is find ways to reach people who have gone there 
because I can see how I could have gone there myself. That doesn't mean everyone has to do that. Right. That's not the sort of work everyone wants to do. But I want to do it because I, I kind of want to rescue people who who I could have been. That's probably One, very self-regarding, but whatever. No, yeah, I totally understand. And I have a, a, a friend um, who was one of my students at USC, just graduated a, a few days ago, who's very much in that camp. And I, I think the thing, first of all, I totally agree that it's it's not for everyone and no one should feel like they have to do that. And I, I think that it would be important for privileged people in social justice movements to have a conversation amongst themselves. And I, I think I, I mostly mean like white men that we can carry the water on this so that others don't have to. I, the thing that I'm most sensitive to is the, well, two things, the sea lions, you know, this kind of expression that's, you know, entered into our, um, our parlance now of uh, sea lioning, which is these people yes. who, who say, well, show me the evidence. Well, how did, where did I say that? I never said that they're like pedantic to an extreme and they will take up your whole day with that type of behavior if you let them. And, and secondly, I think people of color have for centuries had to, and women, uh, white women included, have had to defend themselves, their, their right to exist for so long and to explain to the oppressor their oppression that many of them are tired of it and done with it and they don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And, and I'm very yeah. sensi- sensitive to that and very sympathetic with that. And so I, I do think, and one of the reasons I still engage in some sometimes hostile conversations on Twitter and Facebook and various other places, I enter into that space because I can and I, doesn't, I can afford it emotionally uh, and I know when I can't afford it emotionally anymore and I withdraw, but I think as a white man, as a privileged person, I can, I can absorb some of that perhaps that I think others shouldn't have to do that. And, but I am also, I am sensitive and I'm also in, in search of, you know, good faith actors. You know, if I can perceive good faith on the part of someone, I'll engage them for quite a while in, in talking. And then eventually I, I feel like, okay, I've, I've said my bit, like it's somebody else's turn to give it a shot you know like i've i've done the best i can do yeah i i think that's all fair and and certainly your reminder that people who are oppressed constantly have to explain why they're a human being worthy of respect and, uh, the, the, and their experiences are not believed you know i've experienced that myself right i'm gay right right and i've i've had those conversations where i'm having one right now on facebook where someone's like well show me the evidence that homophobia has a bad impact on gay people's psychological life and i'm like are you kidding me right now and part of the sad thing is that to some degree probably they are right they 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 may be acting in bad faith i think the reason i take the view i do which again i stress no one else has to take um is that fundamentally i i'm an educator my first job was in prisons doing prison education with inmates around the uk teaching shakespeare i went to study education as an undergraduate i became a high school teacher and then i went back to study education and now i'm a clergy person which i think is a a form of education too sure and so i my where i find myself most comfortable is in helping people learn and that's the sort of the skill set I think that I have. Um, and 
it's where I think I can do the most good myself. And I, I just, I have a fundamental belief in people's capacity to learn and grow that I've seen in my own work, particularly the prison work, which is very formative to me as a teenager, seeing people who had done absolutely terrible things. I remember we, we worked once with a, um, a man who had a tattoo of combat 18, which is an extremely racist white supremacist group in England. Hmm. And he initially refused to be part of our Shakespeare production because he would have to perform alongside black people. And eventually he decided to take part because basically otherwise he'd be in his cell the whole time. And so he was part of the production. And throughout that process of working alongside black people, he got to the point where at the end of the show, he decided that he wanted to have the tattoo removed and the inmates themselves raised the money to have the tattoo removed. And having seen something like that as a a young person just convinces me that it, it is genuinely possible for people to change and to learn. And that's kind of at the core of my personal view of how society works and the center of my idea of humanism. And that's one reason why I'm committed to that sort of work. No, but I again, think that's beautiful. No one else has to do it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you are, and I'm I'm glad there are places where people can um, can engage that with people like you, and and hopefully, you know, I can be that person, and hopefully, many of our listeners can can be those people as well. And um, and it's not a simple it's not a simple decision when you're having a conversation whether you've you've reached the place where you've done about as much good as you can do and you know, you're just banging your head against the wall and, you know, need to give yourself permission to step out of that environment, that conversation. Um, and, uh, and I, so I, I think that's yeah, obviously as for each person to decide for themselves. Um, well, James, this has been a really great conversation so much so that we've gone, um, well over my usual mark and it hasn't felt long at all. I hope uh, our listeners will indulge us this extra time, but I think it's been really fascinating and I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. We should definitely talk more. Yeah, maybe as we can, a lot of times I do uh, a conversation with someone like this and the the first go around is very general from like, who are you and what do you do all the way up to however much time we have left. But if, you know, if and when you can come back on the show, we can maybe talk much more specifically about one or two ideas and go much deeper. So you bet. Yeah. Well, thanks for everything you're doing. And, um, I hope to, to see you. Well, I will see you, uh, here in Los Angeles in July. So I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us for that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Write to me and let me know what you thought. Ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I hope if you enjoyed this, you'll share the podcast with someone who may need to hear it. Really, the only way our audience increases is when you share this with your friends. It's honestly the best thing you can do to support the show. Also, don't forget the special offer I have going for the next three weeks. If you become a member before June 21st, you will receive a special limited edition Life After God magnet designed by yours truly. It's a great way to show your support for the podcast while also holding important papers to your refrigerator. Also, a bonus episode coming next week, as I mentioned. 
Gretchen Koch joins me to talk about the murder of Dr. George Tiller in her family's home church so many years ago. Thanks again for hanging out. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. 